Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Huge moment last night for Northeast Ohio. LeBron James, the kid from Akron, became the all-time NBA scorer. He is truly a unique individual, does Northeast Ohio proud. Congratulations to him. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Estolfi, and Laura Johnston. we got some news to talk about. Let's go. We knew sports betting in Ohio was torrid after it became legal last month, but we did not have any clue on the numbers. Reporter Sean McDonald has given us our first inkling. Courtney, what is it? Yeah, these are this is some real interesting data. You know, these numbers come from GeoComply, and this isn't going to be the total amount of money spent or 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 number of bets placed. But GeoComply is a product that's used on these apps that are the main source of sports betting in Ohio. And what GeoComply does is it, it checks to see where a user is, where the mobile phone is, when a when different parts of the betting process are taking place in order to determine where someone is so that they're not in Kentucky and and betting illegally, for instance. So this data shows us that there were 2.25 million unique accounts registered in the Buckeye State in January alone, the first month of sports betting. That struck me as a pretty big number. Um, You know, but then also GeoComply showed us how many of these geolocation checks it did throughout the month. And 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 that shows us that there were about 160 million of these checks in Ohio. And 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 during the NFL playoffs between January 14th and 29th, these geolocation checks happened in Ohio 87 million times. And as we look at these categories of of data from GeoComply, one thing really rose to the top, and that's Ohio is outpacing other states, New York, for example, Pennsylvania, for example, for the number of checks conducted in this first month of legal sports betting. Now in New York, it's a little fresh. They legalized it last year, so there's still interest there, but that seemed to be the takeaway here. Ohio's outpacing states with higher population, or at least New York with a higher population. We were paying a lot of attention to sports betting last year. We have a partner. We're making some revenue off of the advertising from it. And the, the speculation had been that Ohio would be a top state for sports gambling. And in the first week, there were some initial clues that that was the case. But these numbers put it into perspective. That is a lot of betting going on. Of course, it'll take some time for us to see the social ramifications, the problems with sports gambling, the addiction to sports gambling, things like that. But this has become an enormous industry overnight in Ohio. 
Yeah, and like you said, we're just at the beginning. We have to see how this plays out over time. But we heard some speculation from a vice president over at GeoComply, and 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 he he thinks that maybe part of it here is that Ohio has so many apps, sixteen as of this week, that all went live at once. They were all offering big promotions. You couldn't go anywhere online or in the city without seeing those advertisements a few weeks ago. So that could be part of it here. And another interesting trend that reporter Sean McDonald shared. With with us in this story was also where in Ohio some of this action's happening. Cincinnati led the state with 38 million geolocation checks in January, and that kind of computes to me with the Bengals and 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 where they've been, you know, in the playoffs. But um, Cleveland registered about seven million behind Cincinnati at 31 million. Columbus registered about 25 million checks, and Toledo in January, that area registered just under 12 million. I wonder if the presence of the Kelsey brothers of Cleveland Heights in the Super Bowl will boost Cleveland's participation. <laughs> the Cincinnati numbers are interesting because there's evidence that people are driving into the state from Kentucky to to bet. And of course, Kentucky will have legalized sports betting next January. So Ohio has a year to capitalize on the hunger for betting there. Interesting story. It's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine chatted with our editorial board Tuesday, a day after he went near the site of a dangerous train derailment in Palestine, Ohio, which is south of Youngstown. Lisa, what did he tell us of his plans after this crisis ends? Well, there was really nothing concrete that I recall, but, you know, he was asked a question about the accident and whether that begs the question that we need to improve rail safety in the state. And he says he's talking about that kind of stuff with his administration, but he's going to wait for the results of the federal investigation into the East Palestine derailment and spill uh, that's still going on. People are still out of their homes this morning. Um, Although railroads are regulated by the feds, which he said he's very true, you know, which is true. He said, we do have a lot of tracks that are carrying combustible and dangerous products in Ohio. In fact, there are 5,100 miles of track in the state, but rail does remain the safest mode of transport for hazardous materials, in, especially in large quantities over long distance, according to the Federal Railroad Administration. So he said, though, that the East Palestine crash, you know, really grabbed his attention about rail issues. And he said that we need to make sure that it's safe. There are so many questions that come from what's happening over there. Our state house editor, Rick Ruan, did some work as a reporter on this kind of thing. And we're keen on seeing whether this spill, this crash involved a certain kind of rail car, which Rick tells us has been deemed dangerous, that it that it's known for being a leak problem and has been ordered off the rail lines by a certain year, but it wasn't fast enough. If it does, it's going to raise questions about the slowness to remove that car. We also wonder about the air monitoring as they've done these releases. Rick has some friends in Youngstown that said they went outside yesterday and the air smelled of chlorine and Youngstown wasn't in the zone that was evacuated. Mm -hmm. So if you're breathing that stuff in Youngstown, what, what's the danger and, and what is the long-term danger? There's so many questions that are unanswered here. And, and DeWine pretty much said, look, it's a federal investigation. This is Mm -hmm. regulated by the feds, but I, I want to see these answers myself. 
And this is maybe a, a side thing, but, you know, of course, rail workers almost went on strike last year. And, you know, they're saying that they're, you know, engineers are working like crazy, crazy hours on the tracks and they don't have anyone to like, you know, come in and spell them. Not that that's part of this situation, but it is part of the big picture. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. When it comes to the challenges of installing wind turbines in Ohio, few hurdles are as challenging as the birders. They don't like what the turbines do to the birds. How is that battle playing out near where birders hold a large bird-watching festival each year in northwest Ohio, Laura? So the Ohio Supreme Court is going to hear a case over this today. We're talking about the Emerson Creek Wind Project that could generate 847,000 to 952,000 megawatt hours of electricity every year. And the idea is we need this, right? We need some kind of green energy that is not natural gas. The temperature in Ohio, an average, has increased by 2.7 degrees since 1970, but that is fairly close to the Black Swamp Bird Observatory. And they and 19 landowners are asking the Supreme Court to overturn the Ohio Power Siting Board's approval from 2021 for this project. The company is Firelands Wind LLC, and this would be 32,000 rural acres in Erie and Huron counties. The board had already subjected the company to 44 conditions it had to meet during construction and after operations, and it's completed 29 studies of bird and bat migration. They show that the project poses is a minimal threat to the species. That's according to the siting board. But the Supreme Court is going to look at this. The Ohio Environmental Council is actually for the project. They say, yes, there are some hazards to birds, but greater hazard to bird is climate change. I heard from a reader who really thought the story that Laura wrote was very, very even and informative. But he pointed out that these would be the biggest turbines ever in Ohio, that they're huge um, and that the pictures of it don't really do it justice, that that's part of the issue people have. You know, and go ahead. Just Corey. this is um, from my neck of the woods where I grew up and you drive around that area out in the rural kind of parts of the state out there. And, and there's at least there were several years ago when this was being discussed initially, but I mean, just signs all over saying no to wind turbines. So there definitely is some public pushback out there. Do you think the people that have those signs are worried about birds or are they just anti pretty much technology? <laughs> well, I'd say it's not the bird factor. <laughs> it's an easy thing to, to point to, right? Like who can hate birds? Uh, no, they asked for 80 seven turbines. They got 73 approved. So this is a pretty big project. So those signs, Courtney should basically say, give me my petroleum. I love my diesel. I think, <laughs> I, I think just part, say of it, NIMBY. part of it is the size and, and what people see as the imposition on their, their, their space out, out in the world. You know, they don't want to, I, I think a lot of it is look and deal and live alongside these giant structures. Interesting. You're listening to today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council is decriminalizing fare jumping on rapid transit, but it might not have that much in the way of practical ramifications. Courtney, you wrote this story. What's it about? Yeah, so this is, I think, been a few years in the making now. At this point, there's been this effort by transit advocates and others in favor of reducing the penalties for fare evasion. And and people who support this change say it's it's pretty ridiculous that you get uh, a fourth degree misdemeanor, which was the current law up until now, and you could face the possibility of up to 30 days in jail and a $250 fine. And that's all for failing to pay 
$2.50 at the fare box. They think when when people fail to do that, it should be treated the same way as when people in downtown Cleveland fail to pay their fare to park their car on the street. They think, uh, you know, those are civil fines and no jail time. So why are transit users targeted in this criminal way? And and city council listened. And, and what we saw here was a change in the Cleveland city code that moved this offense from a fourth degree misdemeanor down to a minor misdemeanor. That means it now carries no threat of jail time and only a fine of up to $25. However, like you said, this is um, little, this, this has little chance of really affecting the real world. Uh, that's because RTA does not cite under city code. They are empowered to police through a special section of the state code and they use the state code to cite people with fare evasion, and that state code is still a fourth-degree misdemeanor. Except they've pretty much stopped doing that, too. I mean, the numbers of citations have dropped by a staggering percentage. Yes, that was very interesting here. So, you know, a few years ago, uh, a Cleveland Municipal Cut court judge ruled that their means of fair enforcement was unconstitutional using police and stuff. And and, and since that decision, I believe in 2017 or thereabouts, there's been an effort and a recognition, I think, inside RTA to some degree that we've got to change our practices. And like you said, that's borne out in the numbers. Last year, we, we learned from an RTA deputy chief of police that there were only 16 citations that RTA police issued throughout the county in 2022. And and that's a precipitous drop if you look at numbers from years prior and before that Muni court decision. 16 people and, and the deputy chief said that, that, only, that only folks who were charged with other offenses, like for example, um, one man was alleged to have, uh, you know, attacked a, a police officer. He was charged with various crimes. They found he had um, failed to pay his fare, so they tacked that one on too. But they say they're really just directing people to pay at the fare boxes so that these citations aren't issued. And for a while, we had written about this. Instead of citing people, or if they cited people, they could come in and pay a $25 civil fee and the ticket would have been dispensed with. But even that seems like it's fallen by the wayside. If they find you without having paid your fare, they point you at the box and say, go pay your fare. It's a, it's an interesting situation. No talk still on making it free, right? That's been one of the things that Justin Bibb had said he would have liked to have do during his campaign. The study on that is continuing, I guess. Yeah. You know, I haven't heard much of that over it on the city hall side of things. I don't know what things are looking like at, at RTA headquarters, but that's a concept that's out there. I don't know how much legs it has. And, you know, it's worth noting RTA makes just a, a very small percentage of its revenue off fares. So if you could fill that relatively small, whatever million dollar gap, then uh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't need fares. But like I said, I don't know. I don't know if that's got momentum. Okay. You are listening to Today in Ohio. In his meeting with the editorial board, DeWine also gave a hearty defense of his proposal to expand the use of school vouchers in his new budget proposal. Lisa, why does he feel so strongly about vouchers for students to attend charter or parochial schools? 
Well, he says that all Ohio parents and students will benefit from the expanded voucher program, which makes them available to a family of four making up to $111,000 a year in income, which is darn near universal. Um, he said during our meeting yesterday that he, we have kids stuck in schools that aren't doing well and parents should have some choice in the matter. So expand, and this is very likely to pass the, the voucher situation. So uh, it will cost $50 million in two years for 11,200 more students being eligible for Ed Choice scholarships. But he did stop short of endorsing the so-called backpack bill in which the voucher money stays with the student throughout his experience. Some lawmakers think that, you know, DeWine did say he's, you know, urging a little caution here. He said some lawmakers in the General Assembly think we can move right into the backpack bill, but he said the cost would be very, very, very significant. And vouchers is one of three prongs in his education funding, you know, uh, budget. Others are more money for high performing charter schools and, you know, continuing to fund the fair school funding plan. Um, but when he was asked about, you know, because private schools and parochial schools don't have the same educational and performance metrics as public schools. And sometimes we don't know what they are at all. So when he was asked about that, should they have the same performance metrics for these schools? He said, well, I don't think that's really necessary because parents are able to see how their children are doing. And I'm sorry, that's some weak sauce right there. Yeah, I, I I was curious when his budget came out why they didn't just go universal. It, it was it was such an expansion. It's like okay, if we're gonna make this, but he did make it clear that would cost more money than the state can afford. So that's why they went this way, as you said. But you're right. It was. I mean, it does seem like if you're gonna greatly expand these that every school should go through the same rigorous measurement as charter schools and public schools because we get report cards on those. And for him to just say, yeah, I leave it up to the parents. It's mm -hmm. like, well, why aren't you doing that with the public schools and the charter schools then? How do you have a double standard when public money is involved? It's not so much about the accountability of the schools. It's accountability to the taxpayer that are funding them. And I would argue that not all parents know what are what's going on with their kids in the school. They might be busy or distracted. So, you know, yeah, that's not a foolproof method. He did seem pretty sincere about why he believes in these, you know, Republicans that there's been a theory that Republicans want to wipe out public schools forever because they don't like teachers unions. And this battle's gone on and on. I heard a lot of this from some readers this week, uh, but it, I'm not sure that's what's driving him. He, he seemed pretty passionate about the idea that every parent should have the ability to send their kid to another school. Although in our discussion on the editorial board, one of the members did point out you know, if you live in seven hills, do you really have a bad school district that you need to use a voucher to go elsewhere? This isn't just about uh, poor performing schools. It's about people that want to send their kids to religious schools. You're listening to Today in Ohio. In addition to submitting a new two-year budget to the legislature every other year, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine also has to submit a transportation budget. Last time around, he funded part of it with a gas tax increase, which lawmakers amazingly approved. Laura, what's his latest version show? This budget calls for spending $3.7 billion in state and federal money in each of the new fiscal each of the next two fiscal years. That starts July 1st. This is about 25% more than the current year's budget. 
This is in part because of funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law passed by Congress, plus federal funding that's dedicated to the Brent Spence Bridge Corridor Project. That's being completed by ODOT and the Kentucky Transportation Department, and that's that double-decker bridge over the Ohio River, which... It's, it's 71 and 75. I bet most of us have driven across it at some point. It was already over capacity when it opened in 1963. So that's part of it. But ODOT wants to spend $2.3 billion on roads, $717 million on bridges, bridges, and there's a small piece for transit, $211 million over the next two years to local governments for rapid transit. What about... Uh- an expansion of rail. Anything in there about that, really? <laughs> Nothing in the transportation budget, but I did just see this morning that we posted that DeWine took his first step towards applying to the federal government, um, but to seek the federal money for Amtrak expansion. So that's exciting. But, you know, obviously we've talked on this podcast before about the fact that gas tax can't pay for everything, especially with more hybrid and electric vehicles on the road. And so ODOT is looking at what would be the fairest way for us all to pass, you know, to, to pay for these projects. And that's not really part of his budget right now because that's looking in the future. Right. And what they're talking about is charging you by the mile for what you drive, uh, which raises questions about should bigger trucks pay more because they do more damage per mile. Uh, That's ultimately something for probably the next governor to deal with. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland City Council had a spirited debate on the proposal to keep Highland Hills golf course running. What are some members concerned about there, Courtney? I thought this would fly through them. Yeah, so we we saw a committee hearing on Monday, and usually when things are heard in that committee, there's a really high likelihood they advance to the next committee and then get passed by the full council that night. But we did not see that this week, so that means council is is working on some issues with this legislation potentially. So this, the city is proposing that it enter into an agreement with a newly created foundation of, of, of people who are frequent golfers of, of Highland, Highland Park Golf Course, and, and they want to see it succeed and go into the future. They banded together, set up this 501c3, and the city wants to, you know, kind of hand the keys over to them and enter into a 30-year lease. And, and the goal here is, is the foundation can fundraise and help supplement and and pay for improvements to the course. So it's not all on the backs of city taxpayers, but council's hesitant here. This is a 30 year lease of a city asset. That was, you know, number one part of council's issues. And then their other concern here is this is an untested group. What, what, what if these, these individuals turn out to be really bad at the job of managing a golf course and, Council wanted to know under what circumstances could the city, you know, take that agreement back from the foundation? What what specific metrics would be used to say, nope, you're failing, you're not doing good, so we're backing out. And those weren't available, so council said, nope, we're not going to vote on this. We need to know that information before we can make an informed decision here. Yeah, actually, it was good to see the council doing its job. This is oversight. They have a good question. If this is a disaster, how do we break it? How easy is it to 
extricate ourselves from it. The hearing also provided an answer as to why they didn't go with the Metro Parks proposal. Lots of people were questioning that, saying the Metro Parks has a good history of running golf courses, but that would have been costly, right? Well, so the reasoning we got somewhat from COO Bonnie Teowin was that they, they didn't want to go with Metro Parks because Metro Parks would have been looking for a 99-year lease. That was one of the reasons, so much longer. That's similar to the lease that the Metro Parks has over at the Seneca Golf Course and other other facilities where they've taken them over from municipalities. So that's pretty standard on Metro Parks' end. Didn't like that. And then the other concern that, that Tiawin raised was that they need money from the city for capital improvements but that kind of was a little confusing to me because under this plan with the foundation, in the first five years, the city's paying out money for capital improvements. So I don't know if the implication there is that the Metro Parks would have been looking for much larger contributions from the city. or But she didn't say that. So I, I don't know what the hesitancy was there. But, you know, we heard from council, specifically Councilman Mike Palencic, who's been around for some of these other deals with the Metro Parks the city's entered into. And he was just, you know, kind of jaw on the floor. Why would you? Like, like Metro Parks is the obvious choice. How could you skip over this and, and want to hand management to this new untested group? Well, it is a good question. I mean, Seneca was another golf course that had a legion of problems before it, it changed over. And really, we haven't heard anything bad about it since. The Metro Parks does a great job managing its properties and the city has signed 99-year leases. So why not? I guess... That I thought it was the cost of capital improvements was what the reason she was citing. But if she didn't articulate those, then council deserves some answers on that too. Good, good for council for doing its oversight job. This is what they're supposed to do. You're listening to Today in Ohio. U.S. News and World Report ranks hotels. And the best of Ohio is not here, Lisa. Where is it? Cleveland didn't do too badly in the top 10. This is the U.S. News and World Report rankings of hotels nationally, and they did it by state as well. Now, the top two positions were in Cincinnati. Uh, the Lytle Park Hotel was number one. It was a new hotel. It was built in Cincinnati in 2020. And number two is the 21C Museum and Hotel in downtown Cincinnati. And it's there's a museum as part of the, of the hotel property. But Cleveland had three in the top 10. The Ritz-Carlton Cleveland at number number three, the Intercontinental Cleveland at number five, and the Metropolitan Metropolitan at the nine was in the 10th spot. Columbus only had one in the top 10, number six, Hotel Levesque in Columbus. And uh, most of these were in Northeast Ohio. Number four, the Hancock Hotel was in Findlay, south of uh, Toledo. Also, uh, Perrysburg, the Bellamere Suites was number seven, and uh, the Hancock Hotel in Findlay was number four. So they ranked 114 hotels, you know, in all in Ohio, out of 6,000 nationwide. The rankings are for luxury class hotels only. Uh, they're based on hotel class, industry awards, and guest satisfaction reviews on TripAdvisor. Now, the number one nationally, can you guess what state it was in? It was in Florida. The Aqualina Resorts and Residence in Sunny Isles Beach, Florida was number one nationally. Huh. Huh. Never heard of that. Has anybody stayed in the Cincinnati hotels, the top Ohio? Anybody familiar with them? Okay. I stay at Best Western. 
I'm just going to put that out there. I I put that out there because I knew you were going to respond and you (laughs) took the bait. Thank you, Laura. You are listening. You're welcome. Happy to comply. To Today in Ohio. Melt Bar and Grill was all the rage a few years back, expanding rapidly and often having seriously long lines, but it just closed two restaurants. Are the days of the cholesterol feeding fair receding? Laura, what is Melt's plan? I don't think that the cheese giant is gone or will be anytime soon. And it's because they closed the ones far away in Dayton and Columbus. And because they're so far away, they were more expensive to operate. They had to have more of a safety net, um, backup managers and things like that. So the 17-year-old chain is regrouping. They're launching a new menu in March that will restore items that were removed during the pandemic years. So they have they can bring back the favorites. Paris Wolf got an interview with Matt Fish, the owner, about what is really like a Cleveland favorite at this point? He said, we're doing fairly well. The economy took a dive last year and that affected our volumes. People are still feeling the effects of the pandemic. We're still seeing the same guests, just not as often as we did previously. And like all businesses, really cost of goods, fuel, labor is all going up. So they're going to concentrate on the core here. There's six locations still left, but you're right. I remember, so 17 years ago, that's basically when I moved uh, to town. I was like one year after it had moved into Lakewood and remembering hearing about this restaurant and the giant grilled cheese. And I so wanted to go. And it is a very unique spot, but I, I think it's not something you go to every week, right? Because they are such giant sandwiches. Yeah, it was. I mean, I remember, I can't believe it's 17 years old, but it was, it was the spot. I mean, they opened one in Cleveland Heights and the, the backed up traffic Hugely, I guess that one closed during. The also, pandemic. that's the that bottleneck at Lee right there, right? Um, and Cedar it, with the with the parking on the street is always bad. But yes, yeah, but it was much worse when that <laughs> restaurant was running. It, it uh, was. But, there were but, lines. Yeah, yeah, it was. And look, this place was the rage. You you think Laura? It still has that kind of flavor. No, I don't think it has the same panache when people were still waiting to try it for the first time. Right now, it's like a comfort food. It's not just like the hot new it restaurant. I haven't been in years, but I mean, it's a fun place to go with a family. It's not expensive. My kids always find something to eat. So you just have to be prepared to take half of it home in a doggy bag. (laughs) Or more than half. I mean, I went a couple times right after I moved back to Cleveland. um, And this would have been the one, you know, in uh, Cleveland Heights. And uh, honestly, I felt my arteries hardening up. It was delicious. But those sandwiches are like three or four inches high, full of cheese. And then they have like meatballs in them and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Very unique. The the you know going through the menu, it's like oh, didn't realize you could put that on a sandwich right. with cheese, but that's cool. Yeah, health food. You're listening <laughs> to today in Ohio. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast. Come on back Thursday for another discussion of the news. 